Are you in the market for a new pair of headphones? Studio Sweden wants to revolutionize the way we see headphones and makes it a priority to create headphones that are not just a tech device, but also an accessory. The tray model comes with a clip to keep the cord secured to your shirt, a leather carrying pouch, and changeable ear pads for a comfortable, custom fit. They provide worldwide shipping with tracking, so check them out at studiosweden.com and get 15% off when you enter code MOMSANDMURDER at checkout. Hey guys, and welcome to the Moms and Murder podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. <laughs> How are you doing this week? <laughs> busy, but wonderful. Yes, How I know. I agree. Super busy. Yeah. Um, so we're going to get right into it today. Um, we have a special episode, which we, I feel like we do all the time because we just like to keep you guys guessing on what we're doing here. So, Well, <laughs> by us being special, it just makes every episode special. Right. Is that how uh, it works? I will go for that um, <laughs> explanation for sure. <laughs> so we're going to be talking today about um, the O.J. Simpson case, which was kind of something we were a little apprehensive about doing because, of course, it's been done a lot. And, right. um, you know, we don't really want to do something that we can't bring anything interesting to. Yeah. So we are mostly going to talk today about the what was said in a kind of a newish documentary series that was on Investigation Discovery called Is O.J. Innocent? The Missing Evidence. And um, there were some detectives that worked that case that worked the case in that documentary and kind of uncovered a little bit of new evidence that maybe you've heard of, maybe you haven't. Um, But we're going to kind of go through what was said in there. And then at the end of this episode, we are going to have an interview with Derek Lavasser, who was one of the detectives on that show. So that is um, a really cool interview. We hope you guys will stick around and you'll enjoy that. Um, He'll answer some of our questions that we have about OJ. And then he has a few other things that he's going to share with us. So, um, So stick around at the end and you'll hear that lovely interview that we have. And he won Mandy's only favorite reality show, Big yes. Brother. Yes, he did. He won Big Brother, which um, I don't know why I didn't mention that to start with. I know. <laughs> that's like the selling point. And then, I mean, he's wonderful anyway, but that's that's what we, we lead with. If, if, if you're trying to convince me to listen to something, you lead with reality. Right. <laughs> right. So it was kind of like a, a mashup of it both is. of our worlds it this is. week. So it was great. So um, we're just going to go through, you know, everybody kind of knows this case. We're going to go through a brief rundown of the case and then we're just going to get right into discussing some of the evidence that was presented in this documentary series and um, kind of just go through those and talk about what some of the theories are that are out there and um, what some of the evidence could could possibly have pointed to. So we're going to go right into it. Um, of course we all know OJ's real name is Orenthal James Simpson but I'm going to refer to him as OJ Thank just you. like the everyone juice. else does. The juice, yes. Uh, he was born in 1947 in San Francisco, California. His performance in football contributed to his rise in fame, making him a college football star, eventually earning him the Heisman Trophy in 1968. He went on to play in the NFL for the Buffalo Bills from 1969 to 1977. After his football career came to an end, he took up acting and appeared in a few movies as well as appearing on TV as a sportscaster. Who's in Naked Gun? I love the Naked Gun movies. Yeah, I know. He. <laughs> I looked up some of the other movies that he was in. There weren't that many, but... Yeah. None of them were well, I like was in box none, office so. hits yeah. or anything. <gasps> Nick a gun. Was it? Yes. I don't know. I guess I was Mandy? just too young to know. Please that. don't be an ageist about this. <laughs> well, dear old Melissa. You know, if the shoe fits. <laughs> so OJ married his first wife, Marguerite, on June 24th, 1967. The couple produced three children, Arnell, Jason, and Aaron, who drowned in the family's swimming pool a month before her second birthday. During his marriage to Marguerite, O.J. met Nicole Brown, who was a waitress, and at the time she was still a teenager. 
1979, O.J. and Marguerite divorced, and six years later, in 1985, he married Nicole. The new couple had two children of their own, Justin and Sydney. Before O.J. and Nicole even married, there were already signs of trouble. In 1984, Nicole had called the police when O.J. had taken a baseball bat and hit her car with it. There were no charges filed, and the couple proceeded with their wedding a short time later. As their marriage progressed, so did O.J.'s outbursts, and on New Year's Eve of 1989, O.J. and Nicole had a particularly nasty fight that led to domestic violence charges being brought upon O.J. That night after a New Year's Eve party at their home, O.J. had punched and kicked Nicole, slapping her so hard that he left a handprint on her neck. According to the records, he pulled her hair and screamed at her, I will kill you. O.J. pleaded no contest and did not serve any jail time for the incident, but was instead allowed to pick his own psychiatrist and receive counseling over the phone, which wasn't even a thing that was totally unprecedented, and I'm sure a lot of people were. The judge definitely wasn't happy, thought, you know, really thought he needed to do some jail time for this yeah. incident. And when did they ever do that kind of thing? Like, now right. you can do counseling online and stuff, but like... Not in 1994. Yeah, yeah. I, don't, I don't know. Um, so O.J. went on to publicly downplay that fight and... He actually told police himself that they had been called to their residence at least eight times for domestic battery issues, uh, which is a lot of times to be called for that. One time is a lot of times. Right. Um, So Nicole finally had enough, and she filed for divorce in 1992. Following the divorce, Nicole relished her new life as a single woman. She received $433,000 in the divorce and was awarded $10,000 a month in child support. Financially, she and the kids were taken care of, and she remained a devoted mother despite her busy social life. O.J. wasn't exactly on board with Nicole's new lifestyle, and he became increasingly jealous and began following her around. Nicole attempted to reconcile her relationship with O.J., but by the spring of 1994, she told her friends and family that she was ending the rocky relationship for good. On the night of June 12, 1994, Nicole and O.J. both attended their daughter's school dance performance. Nicole and her family were supposed to be going to Jackson's Restaurant, where O.J.'s son Jason had actually worked as a chef, for a celebratory dinner after the performance. These plans changed, and Nicole took her family to a different restaurant named Mezzaluna, where her friend Ron Goldman had worked. Nicole and the kids returned home around 9.15 p.m., and shortly after that, Ron Goldman stopped by to drop off a pair of glasses. The two of them were brutally murdered just outside of Nicole's condo on Bundy Drive, with O.J. being the prime suspect in a messy investigation. So like I said in the beginning, we're kind of working on the assumption here that most people are familiar with how this case kind of unfolded after the murders took place. So we're just going to quickly go through some of the crucial pieces of evidence that have made this case so infamous. Uh, And a lot of the debate around this case is centered on how the LAPD handled the crime scene and the evidence within it. There are, of course, many people who believe 100% that OJ is guilty and they will never be convinced otherwise. Um, And then, of course, there's people who think that the crime scenes were just too contaminated and everything was handled badly enough that it provided enough doubt and that he should have been acquitted. Right. So there's two schools of thought there. Um, and then there's people who think that, yeah, he was guilty, but that the the way the scene was handled and the way the evidence was presented at the trial still pointed to, like, an acquittal for him. Right. I just think it's all craziness. I'm not going to comment on my personal thoughts yeah. on the case. Um, we're just going to go through what, what we learned in this right. documentary we watched. Um, so some of the things that were kind of problematic um, was the physical evidence that was found at the scene, which there was not a lot of. Um, A lot of you will remember that there was never a murder weapon 
found or confirmed that that was the murder weapon in this case. Still to this day, they don't know. Um, but there was a left-hand glove left at the scene that was soaked in blood. There was a black wool hat, kind of like a beanie. That's what I call it. Yeah. Right? Like a I beanie cap, a beanie. like a, a knit hat um, that was found near that glove. And then there was a lot of bloody shoe prints. Um, there was a little bit of hair evidence that was found on Ron Goldman's shirt and on the wool hat that they found. And there was blood evidence that they believe was left by the killer. So some of the other evidence that was found not at the scene, um, they found a the matching glove, the right-hand glove, also covered in blood outside of OJ's residence where he actually lived. This was only two miles away from Bundy Drive where the murders took place. Um, and they found that at his Rockingham address, which is where I just said that he lived. One of the other things they had found that was um, kind of a big piece of evidence was a pair of socks in OJ's bedroom at the foot of his bed on the floor. And they had blood on them from both of the victims and from OJ himself. And we'll talk a little bit about how that was, how that there was some questions surrounding those bloody socks. And there was a lot of um, accusations in this case of right. like police, Misconduct. not just mishandling, but actually planting evidence. Yeah. And, um, you know, a lot of people think, how dare somebody say that? But it does happen sometimes. I mean, I don't know if this, in this case, if that was what was going yeah. on, but I, you have to investigate all those possibilities or, you know, to see if you're actually on the right path here right. for what's going on. Yeah. And then, of course, another piece of evidence that was presented at the trial was a previous 911 call that Nicole had made um, on OJ. And a lot of people, I think, assume whenever they hear that 911 tape that that was, play that was made the night of the murders because I feel like that's kind of been misled or misrepresented yeah. in some documentaries that you see. They'll play that tape and then you're like, oh, well, she called 911 that night and he was trying to get in and, and hurt her. Um, but that, that 911 call, the popular one that you've all heard, actually took place months before the murders did. Right. So she did not call 911 the night of the murders, just to clarify that. So the crime scene itself, police thought, looked like a rage killing. Nicole was actually nearly decapitated, and Ron had extensive defensive wounds. Police, as we learned throughout this, did not really secure the scene properly. They did have a celebrity on their hands. You know, this was a big deal from, get, from the get-go, and some things were handled probably not as they should have been. Um, officers and other personnel were actually permitted to walk around the crime scene, even walking over the victim's bodies before the scene had been photographed and properly cleared. Evidence there was not properly collected. There were actually photos of Nicole showing passive blood drips on her back, and that could only have come from the killer. And this was blood that was never collected. With this blood still on her, they moved her and they washed you know, it all off, getting ready for autopsy, and that evidence was gone forever. The bloody fingerprint on the gate leading into the alleyway, detectives noted it, but they never collected it or tested it. That's like so frustrating, those two things, because it, even in the documentary that we watched or the series, the ID series that we're talking about today, um, like Derek and Chris Mohandi were the two detectives that were revisiting this case. Right. And um, they had just said like that would have been really, really important. Those two things alone would have been super important at the time to have have that blood tested that was on Nicole's back because that would clearly either exonerate OJ or confirm that he was there and that he right. had something to do with it. Same thing with the bloody fingerprint on the yeah. gate. If they had actually collected those, those would have been huge things. And so, but, and those things are so simple to me. Like that's a small thing. Like just collect the blood, right. you know, before you do anything. That doesn't seem like, to me, that seems like a really bad, like mishandling of Yeah, but can you imagine everything. that crime scene? It was insane. There's just, everyone is there you know, the nation's not quite watching yet. But, I mean, it's national news, but it's not like how it progresses, of course. But 
there's just so much chaos and they have so many people on the scene and you never know one person could be thinking the other person's, you know, collecting stuff. Ultimately there's human error in police work. It's never going to be perfect. You want it to be perfect, but they're always, you know, something can, can be missed. They're only human. Right. So of course, uh, the, uh, ne- the next piece of evidence was the big, the glove. This is the famous glove that in the trial, you know, the famous line of, if it doesn't fit, you must acquit. And um, that's what a lot of people know, remember this case, or from this case, if you know the OJ case, people know that line. Johnny Cochran. Right. <laughs> I think of Johnny Cochran as the attorney in Seinfeld for Kramer. Mandy does not know what I'm talking about, but you that are listening, you'll know who I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, so that glove, like I said, was soaked in blood at the crime scene. It was a left-handed glove and the brand of glove was Aris Light and they were size extra large. So they, detectives had actually found proof that Nicole had bought this brand and size of glove in 1990 at a Bloomingdale's. And OJ had worn that brand of gloves for the previous four years leading up to the murder. The right hand match to the glove was found outside of OJ's Rockingham house, also covered in blood. Of course, they know it was a match because it was the same brand and size and it was a match. That's definitely, you can see where they're like, obviously, this is your glove. Right. You know, there's really no, it's kind of open and shut with that. But it didn't fit. (laughs) You must acquit. The next piece of evidence is this black wool hat. Um, in this ID series, they focus a lot on who a secondary suspect could have been. And one they come up on is um, Jason, OJ's son. And some of their reasoning behind this goes back to this black wool hat. There's pictures of Jason wearing this black wool hat. They could never find pictures of OJ wearing this black wool hat. There was hair evidence found in this hat that was consistent with a black male, but could not be identified to a specific person. And that was because there was no, like, skin attached. There was no hair follicle. It was just right. hair. So they could kind of determine the ethnicity and kind of where, you know, what type of hair it was. But they there was no DNA attached to it. Right. Previous to this, Jason had been seen photographed in this wool hat. Like I said, this black wool hat. After the murders, you see him wearing this gray wool hat. So they think, oh, well, maybe, you know, he's lost his black hat now. Maybe now he's got to wear a gray one which just seems kind of silly to me. Maybe you just don't want to draw more attention to yourself. Right. And that was one thing change it up. Right. Well, that was one thing they actually said in the in the ID series was that um is it possible that he just didn't want to be associated with anything with, to do with the murder? You know, he obviously knew that this black hat was yeah. found at the scene. So, I'm not going to wear a black hat like that anymore. It's kind of logical if you ask me. I wouldn't want to either. No, I don't blame him. The last thing you want now is a picture of you wearing it so you think oh, I'm just going to switch to gray. Right. <laughs> So a huge point of debate in this case was over how many sets of footprints that were at the crime scene. Uh, Dr. Henry Lee, who is a famous forensic scientist known for his work in high-profile cases such as the John Bonet case, Lacey Peterson, and some of the early stages of the Kaylee Anthony investigation, he believes that there is evidence that shows a second person on the walkway where Nicole and Ron were killed. And he has kind of come to this conclusion because of the shoe prints, like they're he said there's one obvious set of shoe prints that came from one person, but then there's another set of prints that look like a second person was walking through the blood and kind right. of tracked it all over the place. And then the defense found a third possible shoe print going away from Nicole's home. So this is all kinds of confusing. There's yeah. a lot going on at this scene. Like we've said before, it was a very messy crime scene. There was a lot of blood. It was a struggle. And like we said, it was just, there was just a lot going on. Like yeah. you said, for detectives on the scene to be examining this whole thing I mean there just was a lot there I mean I can you can you would get confused you yeah know, I would so detectives that work the case 
deny any evidence of a second person being at the crime scene. And they say that the second set of footprints was actually a fabric imprint from Ron's shirt. He was wearing like a flannelly kind of shirt. And they're saying that while he was in the struggle and rolling around, whether his shirt was like bunched up. And so it created this pattern when it had blood on it. And he kind of was, you know, on the ground and that that's what that, you know, quote unquote, second set of footprints was, uh, that it wasn't actually a set of footprints at all. And something that I thought was really, really interesting about this was that Dr. Henry Lee was not allowed to access the crime scene until 12 days after the killings. And the scene had already been washed down and scrubbed of all, you know, any of the physical evidence that was so still there. So what is there. the point? Exactly. And so all he had to go on was photos to analyze the crime scene. And of course, in those photos, that's when he noticed, you know, there was people standing on this on the steps right yeah. next to the bodies and he was like whoa 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 why were they even standing there like this guy is standing right over the victims this whole crime scene is you know contaminated you yeah. know just based on what i can see in these photos so he wasn't really a happy camper and i thought it was weird that they didn't allow him to go look at it before they cleaned it up i wonder who was the hold up in that if it was defense you know or prosecution the police department or what because you'd think You'd want him in there right away. Somebody, it sounds like, was kind of holding that up. Right. But why? Right. You just don't know. We don't. We still don't know. <laughs> Hat tip. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> the next piece of evidence was the right-handed bloody glove. And this was actually found at the Rockingham estate, which was where OJ was living. Um, this was kind of found near the side, kind of like it had been tossed uh, on this little pathway near where my buddy Kato Kalen was staying, <laughs> who I was happy to see in this and has still bleach blonde hair and looking as fly as ever. There was also drops of OJ's blood on the driveway and in the entrance hall. OJ wasn't home that night whenever police came to tell him of Nicole's death. He had actually left on a plane to Chicago at 11.45 p.m. Detectives decided to jump over the wall and get inside the grounds. They declared it a crime scene and obtained a warrant. So another thing I had mentioned was the bloody pair of socks that was found at the floor, on the floor at the foot of OJ's bed. So this was to detectives. OJ had come home, peeled off these socks, just threw them on the ground and got right in the shower. Uh, some of you will remember, though, they didn't find the rest of the clothes that, right. that he was supposedly wearing that night that were bloody, you know, or pr we would pr we would assume they would have blood on them. Presumably, if right. he did it, then there <laughs> um, So exist. they never found any evidence of these clothing. The only thing they found that OJ was wearing that they believe OJ was wearing that night were these socks, and um, which I did find interesting because they didn't find shoes that supposedly would have had blood all over them right. tracking through. Um, then they didn't find any pants or shirt or anything like that. They found gloves and they found socks. Yeah. Which, I don't know. I mean, that, that holds me up for a minute there, but well, I don't know. Here's the thing. Socks are like an enigma. If you wash socks and put them in the dryer, they go missing. Right. So <laughs> for socks to be missing or they find them, them later. The <laughs> yeah. It makes sense to me. I get that. So as I said before, the socks had Nicole and Ron's blood on them. Uh, something that was interesting, the socks, the blood that was on the socks was actually tested again at a later time. And the second time they were tested, they detected a presence of EDTA in the blood on the socks. So EDTA is a chemical that is put inside of blood collection tubes. It's a preserving agent. And in this ID series, they had kind of said... There's really no other way that you could get EDTA in the blood if it hadn't been inside of a blood collection tube at some point. Right. They tested the fibers on the socks that, you know, parts that didn't have blood on them, and there was no EDTA found in the socks. 
only in the blood that was on the socks. So this is kind of where these accusations of police planting evidence come into play. Like how would that chemical get in the blood that's on the socks if somebody didn't dump it? from a test tube on there. I guess that's where they were going yeah, with yeah. that. Um, which, you, like I said, those are big accusations. I know. <laughs> Do you remember in the Stephen Avery case, though, that came up with the EDTA, and there was a puncture wound on one of the vials of blood that they had, and then that was like a big shocking point of that case was, well, how did the EDTA get there? It had to have been pulled from a test tube. Same idea. Right. And same idea of them bl- blaming law enforcement, really. Right. Uh, so police, since you brought that up about the vial... Apparently, they did take a vial of OJ's blood to the crime scene, which may be a little bit on the unethical side, but um, they insisted that it was That's procedure, or that they were following procedure. Um, but one vial that was meant to hold eight cc's of blood was supposedly missing one and a half cc's of blood, which um, I guess is, I mean, it shouldn't be missing any, but I feel like there could, that could be explained, Yeah, you know, in some other way. It's not like it was missing half the tube or anything. Right. Um, so I don't know. This just just one of those interesting pieces of you know yeah, information yeah. with this mm-hmm. case. It's just another one of those things that's kind of like, hmm, yeah. that's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so we talked a little bit about the nine one one call Nicole had made before. Um, she made one. She made several of them, but one of them she made on October twenty third, nineteen ninety three, which was months before her murder. Um, in this one, she called and said that. OJ was there and he was going to beat the blank out of her. She begged for police to come and you can actually hear OJ screaming at her in the background, which, you know, points to this abusive situation. And this was an ongoing thing for her. Right. And she um, also in that call can be heard, you know, telling him like, OJ, be quiet. The kids are here. You know, like the kids are upstairs sleeping, which that's just really heartbreaking. Oh, yeah. And especially if that was, like, a regular thing for the Mm -hmm. kids to have to, like, go through or have to hear, you know. And she did tell the operator that the kids were sleeping and they sleep like a rock. And, you know, she didn't know if they could hear anything. They were upstairs. But but it just kind of speaks to the whole type of situation that she was in or at least that she perceived that she was in. Right. Um, You can't really deny, though, whenever you hear somebody in the background screaming like a raving lunatic, you know, saying – hang up the phone or whatever you know she kept saying she didn't want him to know that she was on the phone that he the operator kept asking does he know you're on the phone with us with police or whatever and she kept saying like I don't know like no you know I don't you know couldn't really talk a lot about it didn't want to give away that what she was doing because she was scared of what he would do yeah if he found out that she was calling 911 again or yeah you know whatever the situation was they talked a lot like her family about her as a mom and what a loving and devoted mom she was and that kind of speaks to that you know that your first thing is kind of like be calm like you don't want them to see this he doesn't care if they are a part of this but she's saying you know cool your jets right you know to to be calm so they don't wake up and they're not involved one of the most famous things about this case, I would say also additional to the glove, is the white Bronco that we all have come to know. And we can have flashbacks of that yeah. Bronco chase. Um, so the Bronco was actually a crime scene in itself. They had said that really there are all three scenes, the actual murder scene on Bundy Drive, the Bronco and OJ's Rockingham estate, all should have been treated as separate crime scenes. Um they weren't really treated that way initially, and so they felt that the scenes were all cross-contaminated with each other. And when I say mm-hmm. that, I mean 
there was evidence that not there wasn't evidence of it. It's true fact that officers that were at the scene and personnel working this crime scene on Bundy had sat inside the Bronco. They got inside of it and sat down. And so at that point, you have contaminated the whole the whole oh my scene gosh, yeah. because you have no business getting in there. It hasn't been looked at. It hasn't been processed as a crime scene. And here you go where you're coming from one scene and you're going into the other one. So that's cross-contamination. And so that was an, a problem yeah. for detectives because now anything that you find in the Bronco, you have to question, did it come right. from somebody, you know, did blood hitchhike on someone's shirt or something <laughs> and go and get in, in there? You just don't know. Yeah. Um, I mean, you can say probably it was you yeah know, but at the same time if you're bringing evidence to court like you've got to know that you know that you know or right they can question it and it it's thrown out so one officer who was looking after nicole's dog uh, the akita who had bloody paws of course he had been frantically running around his owner you know after she had been murdered and one of the officers was actually in contact with that dog and was kind of looking after the dog and that was one of the officers that got in the bronco so this is kind of where it's like hmm First of all, yeah, you shouldn't have gotten in there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, you had no business getting in there. But it definitely poses a problem for any evidence now that they find in the Bronco. Right. Um, so in the Bronco, there was quite a bit of blood. And when we say quite a bit, I mean, it's not like it was a – It's it wasn't like the crime scene. But there was enough where it was obvious that there was blood in the, in the Bronco. Right. And um, there was a small amount of blood found on the outside of both the passenger door and the driver's side door. This amount of blood was so small that it was really not – uh, sufficient to collect and test um, but they do believe that that was OJ's blood from possibly a finger that was cut on his left hand as he was reaching to open the door um, to get in the car he may have hit that knuckle on the car and just ever so slightly got a little bit of blood on there yeah um, but then they found blood several places inside the car it was mostly on the driver's side and on the door panel on the driver's side and then there was quite a bit on the center console there was a small amount that was also on the passenger seat the blood that was on the console was tested, and it came back to be a mix of Nicole and Ron's. And on the passenger side of the Bronco, there was OJ's blood and Ron's blood. So Detective Lang, who was one of the lead investigators um, on this case, had found an interior light bulb that was in the Bronco had been removed. So this is like your interior overhead light. Right. Um, it was removed, and they found the bulb under the passenger seat. Well, of course, they felt that if OJ had removed that bulb before going to kill the murders, well, that proves premeditation. It proves that it wasn't just a rage killing where he went over there with one intention and then something happened and it escalated into this brutal murder. Um, but if he had taken that out, that would indicate that he knew he was going over there for that purpose. He took out the light so that he would go undetected when he was getting in and out of his Bronco. And um, so that's kind of where they went with that. And they thought that that was an important piece of evidence in the Bronco as well as just the blood that was in there. Right. And now we are at the Bronco chase. My Do you remember part of where you were? Story. Yeah. Do you remember where you were during the Bronco chase? I don't because I was very young when this <laughs> happened. <You> just <laughs> keep offending everyone, Mandy. Mostly me. <laughs> so we're at July 17th, 1994 at 8.30 a.m. Robert Shapiro, who's O.J. Simpson's lawyer, and we talked about him in a recent case. Yes. Yeah, he was part of that. He didn't do a great job. He <laughs> receives a call from the LAPD telling him that O.J. needs to surrender. Shapiro finds that OJ's in a home in San Fernando Valley and tells him that he has to surrender by 11 a.m. Murder charges have been filed and there's an arraignment scheduled for the, that afternoon. When OJ fails to surrender, police say he's going to be announced as a fugitive. Shapiro gives him directions to the house where OJ's at, or he thinks he's still at. Police arrive at this location and OJ is not there. Shapiro says that OJ and Al Callings 
former teammate of O.J. Simpson. He went by AC, and he had a wife who was on Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. She was terrible, only lasted one season, then she was gone. Might have been his girlfriend, but anyway, that's my connection here. (laughs) That's what I find important. And uh, so, so Shapiro says that O.J. and Al, or AC, had left the house. Police eventually issue a warrant for Cowling's arrest, and at 5 p.m., Shapiro holds a press conference where Robert Kardashian, everyone knows who that is. There's just so much in this case. Right? <laughs> it's so, and like, like that wasn't even a big deal then, but now if, you know, Robert Kardashian's passed, but now, oh my gosh, like yes, that's the biggest I know. deal in the world. Yeah. Also, I'm not a fan of the Kardashians, um, and I like a lot of crappy TV. So Robert Kardashian reads a suicidal letter from Simpson. Simpson makes a 911 call at this point from his Bronco at 5.51 p.m. The location was traced to the Santa Ana Freeway near where Nicole had been buried. The highway police began a pursuit, and everyone remembers or has seen that little chase of them. This was like the worst fast. chase. No, it was like the, the worst low-speed chase yeah. ever, and, and it lasted a long time. It went all through, all over the place in California. You can tell this is like They were going like 35 miles an hour. I know. <laughs> Like stopping and using turn signals and stuff. It was like the politest thing in the world. (laughs) So OJ's actually threatening to kill himself at this point with a gun. So as Mandy said, they're doing like a slow chase all through town. And they go all the way back to his Rockingham home. They arrive at 7.57 p.m. And Jason Simpson's running up behind the Bronco as it pulls in the driveway. Police quickly usher him away. And finally, OJ surrenders and is taken into custody at 8.47 p.m. So when Jason came running up behind the Bronco, this was America's first look at Jason yeah. Simpson. And, um, of course, many people were like, well, who's that guy? Yeah. Know, why is he running? What is going on? You right. know, after this, now this crazy chase has gone on, and here comes this other person that's running up and um, was saying, don't do it, OJ. Or somebody screamed, don't do it, OJ. I assume that wouldn't have been Jason because that's his dad, so he wouldn't have called him OJ. So I still don't know. I'm not clear on who screamed, don't do it, OJ. Yeah. Um, Somebody, I guess, who just thought he was going to hurt himself uh, right. or kill himself. Um, so, but Jason is, we're going to kind of go into that a little bit now because there was a lot of talk in this ID series about, basically the whole thing was either vetting Jason as a as a legitimate suspect or an accomplice, possibly, or possibly even the actual murderer. And there was a lot of evidence that was focused on that and that there was a belief that he may have even had a motive and all of that. So I want to talk about some of that because I thought some of that was really interesting and um, definitely worth thinking about. So, of course, keep in mind as we present this information that no charges have ever been filed against Jason. He is not guilty of a crime uh, that we are aware of, and we're just saying what kind of what the interesting facts of the case were. Right. We don't have any opinions on his guilt or innocence in this case. Um, so at the time of the murders, Jason was 24 years old, and he was on parole for assaulting a previous employer. He had previous domestic violence issues against his girlfriends, and at one point he had attacked one of his girlfriends and with a knife. He was threatening her, and she thought he might kill her, but he ended up using this knife that he had to cut off her hair, which really horrifying. Yeah, Um, that's terrifying. That is terrifying. And she did end the relationship after that and got away from him. You know, she was not in, not in that anymore after that situation. Um, 
So Jason also had a very strained relationship with OJ. He was sent to military school as a teen and he wrote down in his journals a lot and he kind of had expressed to, you know, close people that he was close with that he just felt like he didn't get to spend a lot of time with his dad and he really wanted to have that re- that relationship, that father-son right. relationship and he just felt like his dad didn't have a lot of time for him. Mm-hmm. Um and so of course people kind of think could that speak to this whole situation as yeah. a motive, you know. So the night of the murders, Jason says that he was at work at Jackson's restaurant where, as we said in the beginning, he was expecting Nicole and the family to show up for dinner. Right. And um, he says that he was at work until about 10.30 p.m. So there was his, where he worked, they had a time, you know, time cards, but they did, it was like a machine where you go and you put your time card in and it punches your time. And um, that's like just so, does anybody even know what that is anymore? (laughs) Like a time punch? See, now you're (laughs) ageisming yourself. (laughs) Well, now it's just all, it's all yeah. computer. You yeah. Know? Um, so it was one of those things. Well, on that time card, which was really his whole alibi, it was this time card proving that right. he was at work. Well, there was, at the top, there was a handwritten entry and it had said, you know, what time he got to work. And then it was that he, you know, it was written in there what time he left and it was after 10 PM. And, um, that was what was given to detectives to look at, to confirm or deny that he had anything to do with this. Right. So, um, the handwritten entry, of course, was perplexing. They wanted to know why this handwritten entry. They looked into it and found out that the punch clock was working. The machine was working just fine on the night of the murder. So why did why this handwritten entry? Why was, And there was other entries that were not handwritten. They right. were already punched in from previous um, shifts that he had worked. Um, so that was kind of one of the things that was like, you need to look into that. Because why would you handwrite an entry? Is it is are you forging your alibi? Right. You know, were you really at work? We need to kind of look into that a little bit more. But Jason was never officially questioned um, during this investigation. And that was one thing that Derek and Chris from the ID series were kind of astounded by. They were like, we can't believe he was never questioned as a suspect. Even Cato Kalen, they talked to him and they said, you know, blah, 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 Jason this. And he was never, you know, spoken to but with police. And he was like, completely dumbfounded at this point you everybody would think that they would speak to family members everyone close and he lawyered up and didn't speak to anybody so detectives were kind of on this line of thinking that jason could have had a possible motive because nicole stood him up and didn't go to the restaurant and maybe he was feeling inadequate or embarrassed you know that he had prepared or he was working on preparing this meal for his family and then they go to a different restaurant and you kill them right i mean i can see that you would be mad or upset i would think you'd be tired from making that dinner personally right So when Derek Lavasser and Chris Mohandi spoke with the owner of the restaurant, they were told that uh, the restaurant really was not that busy on Sundays in the summer, and most likely they would have closed up or started closing up by about 9, 9.30. And so they thought that it would be strange if Jason was still there around 10.30 because they weren't busy and they would have been closing up. So they believed that he could have left the restaurant around 9.30 and actually had enough time to drive to Nicole to commit the murders. Um, that was one of the main things was, did he even have time to do this? That right. was that It all hinged on whether or not he had time because he had already they had already been aware that he had gone from work to his girlfriends he dropped his girlfriend off at home and then they were trying to figure out did he have enough time to do that and get all the way over to the Bundy residence and commit murder um and so that was one of the things that really needed to be 
actually vetted. And so what Derek and Chris did um, as part of their investigation, they drove the route from the restaurant to uh, where his girlfriend lived. And then from there on straight on to the murder scene. Um, the first time they did this, it was in the middle of the day. There was a lot of traffic and they did not make it in time. They said, right. no way. There's absolutely no way, but we really need to do this. We need to try and drive this route again on a Sunday night at 9 PM and see if it's possible. Right. Well, the second time they did it, they did get there. Um, it was just barely by the, you know, they were running out the clock for sure, but they made it in time. So that kind of opens up like, well, yes, it's possible. It's a possibility. Right? Yep. It's a possibility. He could have done it. Just like Lenny Kravitz, I want to get away. I want to fly away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And while I'm stuck on the ground for now, I can settle for a new kind of journey, all with a fun mobile game. Step into the enchanting world of June Parker with June's Journey, where a spectacular adventure awaits you. And the best part? No plane tickets needed. Bid farewell to the ordinary and immerse yourself in a realm where intrigue dances with elegance, all thanks to the drama-filled escapades of our charming heroine, June Parker. Whether you crave a captivating mystery or simply wish to escape the humdrum of daily life, June's journey is your portal to excitement. Join June on her quest to uncover hidden family secrets and navigate the tangled web surrounding her sister's demise. So slip into your virtual flapper dress and dive into a world where each corner holds a new clue and every twist leaves you on the edge of your seat. But hold on to your pearls because June's Journey is no ordinary mobile game. I'm knee deep in the fifth chapter and each section is really more delightful than the last. From the breathtaking scenery to the catchy tunes, every aspect oozes sophistication and refinement. So don't hesitate any longer, step into June's world and let the thrilling adventure unfold. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. So another thing that police had discovered is that Jason had rented a storage unit at one of those, you know, like a you, your own storage place. You rent sort right. of thing. Um, and so he failed to make payments on this storage unit for two months in a row. And so because he didn't make these payments, a private investigator was able to buy the unit and the contents that were inside. Uh, once they opened it, they realized there was only one cardboard box sitting in the middle of this storage unit. And so they started going through these things. They found this is where they found the diaries. They found lots of personal things of Jason's in there, including a knife. It was a double-bladed knife that was inside of a sheath. And they really wanted to look into this. They thought they may could have maybe could have stumbled upon what could have potentially been the murder weapon. Right. Um, That's like the best version version of storage wars. Yeah. When they go and buy those <laughs> those storage units. So as I said, the knife was a double-bladed, and the coroner believed it could have been used in the killings, but also believed that the murder weapon really was a single-bladed knife. However, he couldn't rule out that there was more than one knife used or that this could not, could or couldn't have been the murder weapon. They just couldn't, simply couldn't say. Um, so for the first time ever during this ID series, they actually tested the inside of this sheath for traces of blood. Right. They had already tested the outside of the knife, came back, you know, didn't have anything on it. They felt that the uh, knife in the sheath had been preserved enough that um, if they were to carefully cut the sheath open, they may be able to look for traces of blood inside the sheath. You know, it's easier to clean off a knife than it is to clean off the inside of a sheath where you have, it's like material and you have yeah. threads and that th blood can get trapped it's in those impossible, areas. impossible, really. <laughs> right, yeah, you would never be able to clean it all out. So they wanted to... Um, look and see if there was any traces of blood on that. Well, sure enough, the sheath tested positive for blood, but the sample was not pure and it showed several DNA profiles. Everything was really muddled and jumbled and there was just simply no way for them to pull um, any information that would tell them who's who the blood belonged to. That's really 
interesting though to me. I mean, how, how much blood, how, you know what I mean? Right, right. How many DNA profiles can you have? Like that still to me is interesting. Yeah, I yeah. want to know where did that come from? Right. Um, any blood on, you know, inside of a sheath of a knife that you own is suspicious. Yeah. If you ask me. something. Yeah. Something. <laughs> so Jason's personal diaries from the years prior that they found also in this storage unit were very dark. He said he spoke of himself as a Jekyll and Hyde and said he didn't want to do that anymore. He didn't want to be that way. He called himself a monster a lot. He talked a lot about knives and said, this is the year of the knife for me. Um, yeah, it's a weird one. It is weird. Um, but it was like a metaphor, like you use a knife to cut away your whatever it was. Was it Chinese New Year and it was not the year of the dog, <laughs> it was the year of the knife? Because, okay, I don't know all of those. Maybe it was. <laughs> So um, Jason was very quickly um, dismissed as a suspect and his alibi and all of this was never fully investigated and they failed to compare Jason's fingerprints with other unidentified fingerprints that were found at the scene and just overall failed to interview him as a suspect and some people feel like they didn't do their due diligence there. Right. Um, they didn't feel like they had anything on him or any reason to investigate him. Um, so they didn't. Back to the night of the murders, OJ had that 11.45 p.m. flight to Chicago. So after his daughter's performance, he says he went home to get ready for his trip. He'd scheduled for a limo to take him to the airport. Fancy. I know. The limo driver actually first arrived at 10.22 p.m., drove around the block a few times, but said he never saw a Bronco parked outside. Police say Nicole and Ron were killed right around 10.15 p.m., OJ insists that he was at home at the time of the murders and that the Bronco never moved. The limo driver testified that at 10.56 p.m., after several attempts to buzz into the residence and getting no response, he saw a black male, approximately 6 feet tall and 200 pounds, wearing dark clothing, quickly walking across the driveway and then entering the house. The lights then went on inside and the limo driver buzzed again and finally OJ answered. He said that he had overslept and just got out of the shower and would be down shortly. Which was a blatant lie. Yeah. Like, that's not what he was doing. Well, <laughs> we don't know what he was doing exactly, Mandy. We don't. But you're right. Yeah. We, we make no assumptions. But that is one thing doing. that they said. They said at this point he lies to the limo driver. That's one of their main... Like that's one of the, uh, on their timeline, like yeah. he lied to that limo driver and said that he was inside taking a shower and had overslept, but the limo driver knows what he saw or, yeah. you know, thinks he saw, which was, there was no lights on, there was no answer at the buzzer. And then suddenly here comes a person that walks across the driveway, goes inside, lights come on, and now he answers the buzz. Oh, you know, hey. The call. Right. Hey. <laughs> Sorry. So, you know, definitely a little shady. Yeah. There were two duffel bags by the door and OJ carried a garment bag with him as well. At one point, OJ picked up another smaller black bag, and he refused any offers for help, saying he would get it himself. That bag has never been retrieved, and it's believed it could have contained the murder weapon and bloody clothes for that night. Around 4 that morning, OJ checked into a hotel near Chicago's airport. He checked out of the hotel after being contacted by the LAPD about Nicole's death and flew back to Los Angeles. He arrived back at his home around 11.30 a.m. on June 13th. Gosh, that must have been a long night for old OJ. <laughs> right? That's <laughs> Hop on a plane, arrive, check into a hotel, and then literally turn around and get back on a plane and go back to California. That's such a waste of money going to a hotel for only a couple hours. <laughs> That's what I think. I'm like, hmm, how, how much is that an hour? <laughs> $70 an hour? No. He didn't care about that. I know. <laughs> he had bigger problems at Yeah, really. <laughs> I guess he wasn't like line item looking at all of his things and saying, well, this is too much. Right. This is too much. 
So Derek Lavasser says that blood found on the passenger side of the Bronco is perplexing and points to the probability that there was a second person involved. A new witness named Michael Martin has emerged from that night claiming that he was a private investigator working on an unrelated case that night and he was working in Nicole's neighborhood. He says he witnessed a black man get out of the vehicle and walk around the back while putting on gloves. He says he then lost sight of the man when he went towards the entry gate. He says that he used his binoculars and um, observed a second person inside the Bronco, which is weird because if you saw, I don't know why you would immediately turn your binoculars right, to that's like, what the, I thought. the Bronco. That like, doesn't even make any sense. Like yeah. you're just do what you're doing, which is invest, which is whatever. How doing. terrible was he that he lost sight of what he was doing? Right. And, and is now looking at something that has nothing to do with him. <laughs> I just, there, I don't know. I have I a lot of opinions about this right. man. Sure. He's a lovely person. He says while that he's looking through these binoculars into the Bronco, he sees a person that was in the passenger seat jump over to the driver's side. And then about 10 minutes passed, and then the first man that he had seen returned to the car, got in the passenger side, and the Bronco took off. Um, we don't know. We kind of have our questions about that. Is his story really credible after all these years? Um, we're going to talk to Derek a little bit about what he feels about that. Uh, at the end of the episode. So um, we'll let you hear it from him. But he did take a polygraph test and he did pass it. But why didn't he come forward sooner? To be honest, this guy's demeanor, I was not surprised he passed a, po- passed a polygraph test. He just seemed way too like calm about well, everything. Well, he had his like eyes closed. He was like in the zone when he yeah. was taking that polygraph. I mean, he had his eyes shut and like, you know, even Derek or Chris, one of them in the thing said, is his, are his eyes closed? Yeah. So it's a strange way to take a polygraph test. Yeah. Well, it's not if you're trying to... To stay calm and not indicate any untruths, I guess. <laughs> lies, Mandy. They're called lies. So as we all know, and as I said before, the murder weapon in this case has never been discovered and... As we all know, O.J. was acquitted uh, after a 135-day trial. He did lose a wrongful death civil suit, and he was ordered to pay the family's $33.5 million in damages. And since the trial, he has been in and out of legal trouble. In December of 2000, he was involved in a road rage incident and charged with burglary and battery, but he was acquitted of those charges in October 2001. I don't know how this guy keeps getting acquitted of everything. I know. Um, So after that... In 2007, OJ and some accomplices broke into a sports memorabilia dealer's, uh, if you will, hotel room in Las Vegas and stole sports memorabilia at gunpoint. OJ denies that anybody with him or himself had carried a weapon with them or that they broke into the room, but he did admit to stealing the items, which he said were originally his and were stolen from him first. I don't know how any of this works. What's a sports memorabilia dealer? I know. Well, I guess, like, if you're going to sell your stuff, you want, like, a middleman. You don't know what it's worth. He can kind of say what these things are But you sell it out of a hotel room in Vegas? Of course you do. In Vegas, everything is done out of a hotel room, Mandy. I assume. I I don't know. I guess I don't. I've never been to Vegas. I don't know. On October 3rd, 2008, exactly 13 years to the day after he was acquitted of the murders, he was found guilty on all 10 charges related to the Vegas incident, and he was sentenced to 33 years with eligibility for parole in nine years. I think a lot of people were hoping he would have stayed in jail for that 33-year time period. However, he was released on October 1st, 2017. The juice 
is loose. loose. <laughs> so OJ wrote a book, um, as a lot of people know, really kind of a joke. It was titled If I Did It, which was a hypothetical account of how he would have pulled off the murders of Nicole and Ron. And a publishing deal fell through, and a judge awarded the rights of this book to the family of Ron Goldman. So the Goldman family... They kind of like used it as a slap in the face to OJ. They added their own commentary and they changed the name of it. And um, it was then it, they had called it, uh, if I did it, Confessions of the Killer. And they published the book in September 2007. Of course, they get all the proceeds from this. I love that so much. I do too. I, I want to go I buy it. it now. Just I know. So you get the proceeds. Right. We'll be right back after a quick word from this week's sponsor. If you listen to as many podcasts as us, you understand the importance of good quality headphones that not only have impeccable sound clarity, but are also comfortable enough to wear for long periods of time throughout the day. Mandy and I recently ordered the newest model of Studio Sweden brand headphones, the Trey, and we're so excited to share a little about them with you. The Trey model are wireless Bluetooth earbuds with nine plus hours of active battery life and 10 days of standby life. These headphones provide sound transparency, which is great for moms like us who want to be able to listen to our pods and music while still being aware of what's happening around us. This feature, along with the fact that the earbuds are made of sweatproof material, would also make them a great choice for those with an active lifestyle. They provide worldwide shipping with a tracking number, so check them out at studiosweden.com and get 15% off when you enter code MOMSANDMURDER at checkout. All right, guys, so we have just heard our episode on O.J. Simpson, and we talked a little bit about uh, Derek Lavasser and his work on the ID series uh, entitled Is O.J. Innocent? The Missing Evidence. Um, so we actually have Derek here with us today to answer a couple of our questions about O.J. and talk to us a little bit about stuff that he has going on currently. And um, he has written a book, and we're going to hear all about that. But before we get into that, uh, first of all, let me just welcome you to the show, Derek. Thank you so much for coming on with us. Thanks for having me, Melissa and Mandy. I appreciate it. Glad to be here. Uh, would you like to tell us just quickly a little bit about your background and who you are and kind of where you came from that led you to doing the ID series and all, all that fun stuff? I'll keep it um, I'll keep it somewhat law enforcement related. Uh, so essentially, I was hired at the age of 20, one of the youngest ever in the history of uh, my department. Um, started off in patrol like everybody else. Um, because I was only 20 and I, I grew up in the city where I worked, I had a, a knack for communicating with the people in that city um, and just in general had a way to uh, adapt to situations. I was uh, cultivating a lot of informants very quickly as a patrolman. So they moved me into the undercover division, the special investigations unit, um, where I was promoted to detective, uh, worked there for three years, then was promoted to sergeant, uh, went back to patrol for a year or two, and then was uh, actually reassigned back to the special investigations unit but this time as a supervisor. So in total, I spent about five years in special investigations, and I just recently retired in October um, as a sergeant. So I did 13 years um, in, in law enforcement, and then uh, as far as what I did, I mean, we can go into details. I worked for the FBI, DEA, uh, Secret Service, ATF. I did undercover for those guys. Um, worked a lot of multi-jurisdictional operations because of my undercover background. Um, education, bachelor's degree in criminal justice, and a graduate degree in, in business management. So you were really lazy. That's what we're <laughs> gathering from that. So, so yeah, I mean, I love what I do. I honestly love what I do. Um, you, if you watch the show, even OJ, the new show, wait till you see the new show. Um, but even OJ, like, I'm very passionate about it. Yeah. I l literally take every case personal. And I know people are like, oh, that's bad. I don't take it personal in the sense as far as misconstruing the evidence, but I take it personal as I see me against a criminal and like he's trying to outsmart me or she's trying to outsmart me. So I take that aspect of it personal. I'm a competitor. 
I like to, I like to do the best at everything I do. Perfect. So you're kind of like similar ages to us. And so I was wondering about how, (laughs) how did you kind of get into the OJ case? Because of course you weren't very old when that case actually happened. So is it something that you have always kind of been interested in or was that like a, a recent thing? Well, um, I know, I think Mandy, Mandy, you've watched Big Brother, right? Absolutely. I so, watched a two hour review of your life on, in okay. Big Brother. I'm, I'm up to speed. <laughs> so the documentary on YouTube, which is, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's actually, if you watch that, then you've seen it all basically. I love um, it. So long story short, I was, uh, just doing my, my job as a, as a police officer in Rhode Island, no expectations for to doing any, I knew about the OJ case. Who doesn't know about the OJ case? it literally molded our judicial system in a way. I mean, if you don't know that case, you have no business doing a podcast or anything, but that's literally, when you think about true crime, it's OJ. Right. Um, so I did Big Brother, and then the plan was to go home. I went back to being a police officer, and uh, <clears throat> I had an agent pick me up. I wasn't really keen on it. He had kicked a couple shows at me, and I, I turned them all down. I won't say the networks, but I, I actually kicked down a few shows that were geared towards a younger audience. Wasn't really my lane, and it wasn't something I was passionate about, so I turned them down. Um, and then this show came where they, he said, listen, there's a guy out there, a private investigator who believes OJ may be innocent and that his son might've committed the murders. Um, what, what do you know about it? And I said, well, far as I know, OJ did it, but I don't know a lot of the details. Um, but I'd love to take a look at it and see if there's any validity to it. And he said, well, that's exactly what they're looking for. They're looking for someone who doesn't have any preconceived notions, but has like a fresh perspective on investigation. So you're not coming in with all the knowledge because you were, you know, older that at that time you're coming in knowing what most people know the general idea of what happened and you're coming in with a fresh perspective and that's what they're looking for and i said well as long as this guy doesn't mind me calling it however i call it at the end because i know he he believes one thing then then i'm on board with it so i actually flew down to dallas i met with the private investigator bill deer and uh, we had a very candid conversation off the record and, and you know not even off the record but man to man and i said listen i respect what you did i know you wrote a book about it um, I'm going to come at this the way I would come at any case and whatever I think at the end is what I'm going to say. I'm not going to be in line with any agenda. And he said, Derek, all I want you to do is tell the truth. Right. I said, that's one thing I can do. And then it kind of came together. Um, we took off from there. We, we signed the dotted line and we, uh, we, we went to town, we went to work. Perfect. Oh, did you want to go to you? Want to get away? Yeah, I do too. But since that's not really on the agenda anytime soon, I'll have to settle for a different kind of journey. And you can too, all with a fun mobile game. June's Journey allows you to enter the realm of June Parker, where an extraordinary adventure awaits. Best of all, no plane tickets needed. Say goodbye to the ordinary and immerse yourself in a world where intrigue meets elegance, courtesy of the drama-filled exploits of June Parker. Whether you're in need of a riveting mystery or simply yearning to escape the monotony of everyday life, June's journey is your gateway to excitement. Follow June as she unravels hidden family secrets and navigates the intricate web surrounding her sister's demise. It's sort of like an upscale soiree minus the dull weather discussions, although we secretly enjoy those too. But hold on to your pearls as June's journey is no ordinary mobile game. I'm deep in the fifth chapter, with each section proving more enjoyable than the last. From the awe-inspiring scenery to the catchy tunes, every aspect of June's journey exudes sophistication and refinement. Don't hesitate any longer. Step into June's world and let the thrilling adventure commence. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. 
So everybody seemed to kind of be getting on board with the idea that Jason could have possibly been there. Um, the one thing that was kind of the hang up was the time card, uh, which basically was his entire alibi. Um, and you kind of think that you had figured out what the issue was there. We talked a little bit in our episode about how the time card had a handwritten entry on the top and everybody kind of assumed to start with that that handwritten entry was from the night of the murders. Uh, but you have a different opinion on that, right? Yeah. Yeah. So essentially it was a buy. The first, the biggest issue with that time card was of like, where's the other side? You know, mm. where's the other side? Is there another side? And, um, doing some research, I figured out that the, uh, Jackson's restaurant did do, uh, bi-weekly time cards. And when you started to match up what Jason was saying in his statements, which doesn't change over time, what he said then is still true as it was then, as it is now, um, in comparison to what we know, the chain of events, you know, when he moved out, what time he took off of work. And then also the owner of Jackson's restaurant, his statement that he received the time card only two days after uh, the incident, there couldn't have been those other dates punched in. It would have physically been impossible. So as much as Bill wanted it to fit, I just couldn't explain some of the pieces of evidence on that card. And that was the strongest piece of evidence we had because, again, it's timeless. Right. It's black and white. However, when you take into consideration that there was an A at the top of the card and you figure out that there's actually a B side to that card and you plug in the same information that we have that, again, doesn't change over time, it matches up like a puzzle. It fits perfectly. So it's not a matter of what I believe. It's what the facts tell me. And what the facts tell me is that is actually the card that's in question. When he asked for the date of the murder – that's what he got. But, it, you know, Bill kind of, he, you know, when people want to believe something, you can make anything right. fit. Um, and he believed it to be the other way. But when you think about it, there's more variables that have to take place for his theory to work where mine just works. And it's not even about me against him. Right. Again, it's just the facts. And even Chris, who was Chris and I just came on the show together. He concurred as well. And I think the majority of people who saw the show actually after hearing it and seeing it were like, yeah, now it makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. That was actually one of the most um, compelling things what, that I felt whenever I watched the show. Um, I just I had never considered that before. I never heard that theory before. So that was kind of one of the things that I was like, wow, that was really that was really on point. That was a really nice uh, connection that you made there. So, yeah, I thought that was great. Yeah. And we didn't we didn't tell Bill that initially. I had been working on that behind the scenes. So, yeah, we're filming the show, but we were actually investigated. I have a whole notebook. It's all over here somewhere of like all OJ stuff. And uh, and essentially as we were filming the show, I was still in my hotel room trying to figure out this time card. I was researching it. Um, I was Googling it. I had seen other theories that were out there. And at the end of it, with like a week left, I had figured out what I thought what the card actually represented. And I said to the producer, I said, hey, listen, you know, um, don't tell anybody. Just when we're doing our final hash out, throw this time card on the projector and let me let me do my thing. And just don't don't stop me until I'm done. And you guys can cut it the way you want to cut it. But just let me just let me get it all out. And he's like, OK. Oh, wow. Because you would think, you know, in television and stuff, so much is edited. And I know a lot was edited, of course, with any show. Yep. But that's yep. really interesting to know that you had that much to do with it behind the scenes, you know, of how it played out. That's really neat. Bill's reaction was genuine. Yeah. What you saw, that was genuine. And uh, I didn't want to give someone a chance. I wanted him to hear it firsthand on camera and get his general reaction as opposed to, again, it's like we said, and it's nothing against Bill. A lot of people do this. When you believe in something so passionately you can take anything and contort it to fit your narrative. Mm -hmm. So if I would have told him two days before, by the time I met with him that day, he would have had an explanation for it. And right. again, it's against him. I've seen it a million times. So I wanted his firsthand reaction because if he would have said, no, actually, Derek, you're wrong and had a point A, B and C as to why it wasn't correct, 
then I would have I would have believed him. But as you saw, he didn't have anything to explain it. It just it made sense. Right. So one thing you guys talked about was all the unexplained blood in the Bronco, how there's blood on both the passenger side, the driver's side and on the middle console. Um, can you walk us through the possible explanations for all of that blood throughout the car? Yeah. And when we say all that blood in you guys' <laughs> cases, it's really a microscopic amount. Right. But in but in relation to homicide investigations or any crime for that matter, it was a lot of blood for a crime scene to have. And uh, unexplained is um, correct, but what it actually is is just undetected. There wasn't enough blood to determine who it belonged to. Sure. In, in, in theory, it could belong to, to Ron Goldman, Nicole Simpson, or uh, some other person, but more than likely it belonged to one of those two or OJ. Um, there just wasn't enough there to determine definitively who it belonged to. There wasn't enough points to make that comparison. So my belief for the blood, and not only the amount, but the locations, is that there's a, there is a possibility someone else was in the car. That's a, it's a possibility. Um, and it, I don't think the blood belonged to anyone else, but I think it would explain a little easier why there was blood on the passenger side door. If OJ was the only one there, yeah, he could have gotten the passenger side if he was in a sense of urgency and jumped over the seat. But OJ was a big dude. And mm -hmm. it, for me, it just made more sense to go back to the driver's side and get in the car. Um, so again, it's, I have nothing to support that. It's a, it's a theory. It's conjecture at best. But it would explain why there was blood on the passenger side door. What would have made that clearer is if we were able to determine who the blood belonged to, which you saw Tom Lang, the lead investigator, said it right out. I said, who, you know, why is there blood on the He said, your guess is as good as mine. Hmm. You know, it's, there's just some things in certain cases you're not going to be able to explain. It's right. just the way it is. There's going to be red herrings. There's going to be unanswered questions. It's your job as the investigator to work around those pieces. Right. That would be really frustrating, I feel like, to um, to have that be your answer, that sometimes we yeah. just can't explain it. I'm the kind of person I really want to explain every single thing and have an explanation for why certain things um, are kind of the way that they are. Um, and that actually brings me to another question that I had. Um, there was some talk about um, the bloody socks that were found in OJ's bedroom after the murders and um some talk that there was a chemical edta in that in the blood from those socks and then i kind of uh, i may have missed it but i didn't really feel like uh, there was an explanation for that or was there there was it wasn't the highlight of the thing but it wasn't the highlight of the show but edta is a preservative found in the tubes where they to a blood preservative um what we found or what i should say chris found is that EDTA is also found in laundry detergent and in the body, naturally. Um, I'm not a scientist or a chemist, so I can't confirm that, but that was Chris's findings, that EDTA is actually found, again, naturally in the body and in laundry detergent, which would explain why it was on the socks. Again, Henry Lee, Dr. Henry Lee, who I respect a ton, mm. um, love his books, have most of them up here, actually, um, and one of the most intelligent people I've ever met, he didn't say definitively, oh, that automatically means it was dipped there. He just said that, it could suggest that it was poured on the socks. You have to understand there was only eight cc's of blood. So for them to pour it on the socks and still have it in there, again, there's some there's some parts of it that just, just don't fit. If they had poured it out, if Van Etter or, or Lang had poured it out, it, it, there would be a half a tube of blood, and there wasn't. It was almost full still, but there was all these amounts of blood on the socks. For me, it was more likely that the blood was from the crime scene than from a test tube. That's that's the moral of the story, and it's based on the chemical facts that I just laid out and also just common sense, just common sense. His ankles would have been close to the ground, blood spatter. That's how, that's how it got on his socks. 
So you guys actually talked about a new witness or a new witness came forward 20 plus years later, Michael Martin. Um, What do you think? (laughs) What did you really feel like when you initially heard it until after the lie detector test, all of that? And I know you can throw a lie detector test, but what was your general feeling? Are we allowed to swear on this mom's and murder? We can we can edit you. <laughs> we don't swear, but we don't we don't we don't uh, censor our guests yeah. at all. <laughs> I'm, I'm being super censored because I have a terrible mouth, but I'm on TV, so I can censor. Ah, uh, he was full of crap, in my opinion. Initially, initially, my opinion was he's full of crap. Why is he coming forward 30 years later? You know, it just if you had this information and you had nothing to lose, you would come forward with it. It was the, one of the most uh, prolific cases of our of our time, and he would have came forward. Um, but he had an explanation for that. He didn't want to get involved. He thought they had their guy. And it wasn't until after reading Bill Deere's theory that he realized what he witnessed was not the murder, but OJ coming back to the crime scene to clean it up for Jason. That was, again, how we fit the fit the narrative with his observations. I will say this. He did pass the polygraph. So it's one of two things. Either he trained to throw it, as you mentioned, or, or just it was a false positive or a false negative, I should say, or he believes what he said. And that's possible too. And again, that gives more credence to the theory that OJ wasn't alone because if he believes he saw two people, then there could have been a second person there. However, he said he he knew it was Jason. And based on what I saw that night and I have perfect vision, I don't know how he would have been able to identify the back of Jason Simpson's head from the car. I just don't see how he would have done it. it. It seemed very impossible. He said he had binoculars. It's dark in that alleyway. Not much has changed. I saw that's why we go to every crime scene. I want to see it firsthand. I don't want to read it in the books. So for me, it's one of those two things. Either he believes what he saw or he's a really good liar. But it depends on what you want to believe. I said at the end of the show, it's very possible there was a second person there. And and that would make sense as to why OJ went over there in the rage in the first place. We all know he was ready to go to take a flight. Right. So you go from I'm taking a flight to Chicago, your bags are on the porch to I have to go confront her now. Mm-hmm. This has to happen now. Me speaking about myself, that would only occur if somebody told me something abro- that I didn't expect to hear and it fired me up. Right. And, and that's how you that's the heat of the passion. That's the you know heat of the moment. You make a you make a rush decision and, and bad things happen. You know, there's, that's why they call it that. You know, you actually temporary insanity. Right. So I do believe it's possible someone came to him and said something. And he said, you know what? You're coming with me because I don't believe you. And if she doesn't, if she denies it, you're going to tell her what you just told me. Hmm. And, and this person probably said, oh, I have no choice now. And they got in the car reluctantly and went over there, but never got out of the car. And that would also explain the Charlie theory. I don't know if you were going to go there. I hope I'm not taking your questions. No, no, no. You're but fine. OJ himself said. I couldn't have done this alone. I, I do think based on speaking with Pablo, the author of that book, Pablo Fevez, that there was some truth in there. He kind of went in and out of character as he was talking to Pablo. Pablo said that. He's like, there were points where he started talking to me as if he li- was living it as opposed to just give me what I wanted to hear. So again, if you want to believe that someone else was there, there's a lot of strong pieces of circumstantial evidence that would support that. But I don't believe it was Jason. And therefore, Michael Martin, it's... It, it didn't hold a lot of weight with me. It wasn't a a deciding factor for me. Right. Yeah. You pretty much did just answer my question, which is totally fine. I was just going to say, um, that by the end, (laughs) by the end of the, um, ID series, it kind of did seem like you guys pretty much felt that Jason didn't not have anything to do with it. Um, and that was going to be my question was, um, do you feel that there is still the possibility that there could have been somebody else that you just don't really know who it could have been yet? 
absolutely could have been someone else. There absolutely could have been someone else with him. From everyone we talked to, OJ had a bunch of followers, had a bunch of people who were friends but also fans, and they would do anything for OJ. OJ was a well-liked guy. Everyone loved him. He was charismatic. And do I believe that something could have been said to him by someone who was trying to, you know, get on his good side? Like, hey, listen, um, apparently Nicole had some 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 events in Cabo a week or two earlier that uh, this person may have told OJ, and he was like, that ain't happening. They both get in the car together. They go over. OJ goes over there to confront her and to scare her, right? But as he's pulling up, he's walking down that alleyway. Unfortunately for Ron, Ron Goldman, he pulls, he walks in the same time. Right. And what he says in the book, which makes sense, is Cato, the dog, the Akita, comes out. And instead of growling at Ron Goldman, who that's what Cato would usually do, he was a mean dog, starts wagging his tail. And OJ says in the book, that's when I knew that Ron had been there before. There's a lot of theories out there as to what Ron and Nicole's relationship was. We'll never truly know. We know that he was bringing glasses back to her. For me personally, and this is just my personal opinion, that doesn't seem like waiters usually bring glasses back to someone's house at night. It just didn't fit for me. Right. I'm not I'm not making any suggestions. You yeah. come to your own conclusions. But the fact that he was going over there after work to drop off her glasses, we'll, we'll never truly know. But I think OJ put two and two together that this wasn't just to uh, say hi. Right. Right. Well, we appreciate you answering those questions on OJ. Um, we're really excited to release this episode and kind of get that out there. Surprisingly, there's not a lot of true crime podcasts on the OJ case, probably because it's been done so many times. So hopefully we can bring something different to it. <laughs> diluted. That's the problem with the cases. It's so diluted because so many people have given opinions on it. And that was what was tough for us is to, to cipher fact from fiction, because sometimes it gets on the Internet. And by the time it gets back to you, now it's evidence you know right, right. we had to not only find out what we what was true but also what was just kind of put out there in the internet and and made to most people believe it was true there were some things that we heard i'm trying to think of something definitively i can't think of anything off the top of my head but things where i was i went into it thinking oh they found the knife at oj's house or i think there was they found blood in his shower and i thought for sure it was true and come to find out um they didn't find any victim's blood in the shower it was just his from shaving or whatever but right. Um, I thought for sure if there were, if if Ron Goldman's blood was in the shower drain, game over, right? right? Game over. And there wasn't any blood in the shower drain from Ron Goldman. It was just in the foyer area. Hmm. And I don't even think that was Ron Goldman. I think that was. I don't know if they were able to test that. I know on the socks they were able to test, and they got Ron Goldman, Nicole, and OJ. But I don't think in the foyer they did. Hmm. That's still a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's. Yeah. Uh, it's, it was pretty convincing for me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right now <laughs> um well of course we don't want to take up all all of your evening i know we're already chatting kind of late but um just because i'm a huge fan of big brother of course i can't let um this conversation pass us by without bringing that up um so my husband and i have watched almost every season of big brother um maybe not the super early ones but all the recent ones for sure and we both just absolutely loved your season and your entire gameplay. And um, I was very excited whenever I found out we were going to get to speak to you. Um, of course, Big Brother's not related to our show, but big time fangirling over here. Huge she's, fan. She's acting really <laughs> calm, but she's a big fan. Yeah, I am. Um, so like I said, that was one of my favorite seasons. Um, what made you seriously consider going on Big Brother? I've, I mean, you know, I've joked around to my husband that he should go on the show. I think he'd be great for it, too. But um, what made, what makes someone take that leap and actually say, you know what, I'm going to do it. I'm going to apply to be on the show. Yeah. And you say it's kind of off subject, but it's, it's really not. 
it, it all kind of makes sense with my, my past and what I love to do. You know, when I started watching the show, it was probably around season 10, I was undercover. And I was watching the show with my girlfriend, now wife, Jana, and I said to her, I was like, this is literally what I do every day. This is literally what I do every day. So if I, I think I would do well on the show, and she'd go, yeah, okay, whatever. I obviously couldn't apply at that time because I was still working undercover cases, but fast forward a few years, I'm still a fan of the show. I get promoted. Now I'm a sergeant. I'm 30 years old. I have this, you know, you know, half, you know, quarter way through life crisis, I guess you would call it, not midlife, I would like to think, yeah. <laughs> And I say, you know, I'm going to apply one time. I'm just going to do a video and um, I'm going to see what happens. Because, yeah, you're a fan of Big Brother and it's this game show. But if you really think about what it entails, it's kind of a microcosm for our society, right? I mean, it's a bunch of people, different races, different ethnicities, different religions, different beliefs. And you go in there with these people and you don't get to choose who they are. And you have to find commonalities with them and find a way to work. And that doesn't sound like just a game to me. It sounds like life, right? Whether it's at work or at home. So I said, I think I can go in there and apply this approach that I've applied in many other facets of my life and be just as successful. I'm going to apply one time and see what happens. Um, I did a video. They called me back. And uh, the rest the rest is kind of history. I mean, you know how it worked out. It, it really worked out well for me. I just went in there. I stayed true to myself. Uh, what you saw is what you got. And and uh, I, I don't think it was luck. I think it's I think it's a way of conducting yourself that will work in whatever environment you're in, not just Big Brother. For sure. So my next question is kind of a two-parter. You said in the show, didn't you say you were, were like Parks and Rec? That was kind of your thing. Was that yeah. because you love the show Parks and Rec? Please tell me it's... No, come on! I needed I this. The, I never saw the show. No. <laughs> I'm a little nervous because in my one of my interviews, like you watch Parks and Rec? And I'm like, no, they're like, you may want to catch up on it because a Parks and Rec guy would definitely know the show. And I'm like, good point. But I was actually a Parks and Recreational supervisor as a kid. Okay. So whenever you go into cover, you want to try to stay as true to who you are as you can because less likely you'll slip up. Right. And I knew a lot about parks and recreation. I knew there's not a lot of detail to it. So I, I, I felt that I could really talk about that in a way that it sounded real because it was real. Right. So when I told stories about park, you know, working at the parks, some of them were true. Some of them were exaggerated. But there was always something there that was actually true to who I was underneath this character. And I think that made me more believable to the rest of the, the house guests. Right. And then um, we wanted to ask kind of in these reality shows and stuff, and I love reality shows, love them, but Big Brother isn't really trashy enough for me, to be quite honest. <laughs> you went on a... I'm not going to say, but there are certain seasons. I'm sure Mandy will back me up on this that are, might be up your alley. But. There you go. I'm, I'm currently watching Celebrity Big Brother, but that's I want to get your opinions on that, too. But um, yeah, so um, I wanted to see what the screening process is for that. We've talked a lot. Um, we talked on a previous episode about Jasmine Fior and Ryan Jenkins. He was on a very trashy reality show and uh, they met and he ended up killing her and had a whole... Um, you know, background of uh, domestic abuse in Canada, but none of that ever made it to his screening process. What was that like for you? Yeah, the screening process is probably just as intrusive as it was to become a cop, if mm. I'm being honest with you. Drug tests, psychological tests, physical tests, uh, um, actual physicals you have to go through through your doctors and get approval. Um, there's a series of uh, psychological tests, not only of, uh, in person, probably multiple in person, but also written psychological tests. Um, Chris Mohandi from OJ is Innocent actually uh, actually does that for a living as well. He does multiple shows. I won't say the shows, but big shows that you guys definitely know. He's doing one right now. And um, it, they don't play around with that, especially since things like Ryan Jenkins. Right. Um, so I will say going into a house or any game show in today's society, 
I would feel pretty safe because they are very careful about lawsuits and any type of litigation that could affect the show long term. And they don't spare any expense when it comes to taking in experts in, you know, psychology and, you know, obviously making sure that you have the proper paperwork physically to compete in the house, but also make sure that the other competitors are safe as well. They, I really do believe in that process. So you said that you were um, no longer an undercover officer by the time that you had gone on Big Brother. Um, oh, I'm ass- goodness. Yeah. That would have not worked out well for I'm you. assuming that since appearing on Big Brother and now, of course, also having the series, being an undercover cop is out of the question ever again for you. That would be a correct assumption. I actually, <laughs> I actually retired October 7th, and I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit later, but it was a combination of things. Uh, I did 13 years. Um, I had the book come out. Uh, I had the new show on uh, Investigation Discovery. When I did OJ, I worked as a uh, as a sergeant and OJ, but because of how short the filming was, I was able to do both. I was able to take time off of work. I basically used my vacation time for the year to film it. Not fun, especially with two kids. Cause yeah, no. That's all the time I had off. Mm-hmm. This show, the new show that we filmed on ID, was a lot. Was about five months. So there's no way I could have taken that time off. And I didn't expect the department to hold my spot. So my family and I made the decision that I wanted to still work investigations. That's my passion. And this this show allowed me to work investigations throughout the country. And that was something I just couldn't pass up on. So I officially retired October 7th. Perfect. So is what you're doing now then with making these shows, is that what, something you want to continue doing? Or do you have a different plan going forward? I'm not saying this is to sound cliche i don't care about the show as long as id continues to give us the money i'll yeah. film the case <laughs> so the reason why we have to do a show is it is a show you're right but at the same time what it allows me to do is travel the country like you know i can tell you we we went all the way to hawaii for a case and it sounds pleasant but we weren't there for fun and there were multiple crime scenes on the island that i had to visit that stuff gets expensive and yeah. so ID wanted us to go out and help real people who went through real you know tragedies who lost uh you know their loved ones and haven't haven't had any resolution in that yet and they gave us basically they took the handcuffs off and said here do what you have to do try to solve these cases for these families and we did six of them and each case is going to be essentially a two-hour episode so a movie Mm -hmm. so each episode will have a lot of character development as far as the victims and their families because in these hour shows you can't really get into the details of who they were we do that and then as far as the show itself Yes, we highlight what the case is about, but at the end of it, usually you hear like, oh, if you have any information, please please call in or call this website. If we have a person of interest, I'm going to their house. I'm going to go talk to them, and we do that on camera. So if you're leaving the show with like, I wish they would have went and talked to that person. That's what they thought did it. We're going to do it. Yeah. You'll see. We do it. And that's how I view these shows when I watch them. Like, that's great. They basically told me what happened to this person, but what are they going to do about it? Chris and I tried to do something about it. I can't wait. April 15th, it's one of the most proudest things I've ever done as far as an investigator. And as far as the results we were able to have, you know, just just stand by. We didn't go there to fail. I'll say that much. But did you go there to meet Dog the Bounty Hunter in Hawaii? Well, no. <laughs> pleasure. We went to a lot of places. You'll see, we we really got around as far as ge- geography was concerned. No place was off the off the map, you know. When Hawaii first came up, we read the case. We said, there's no way they're going to let us do this logistically. And they, they looked at the case and said, no, this case has something there that you might be able to help them with. You need to go. And we went. And what we came up with was fascinating. And that's just one of the cases. Um, another one of the cases actually from my hometown, a case that's 30 years old, been bothering me for years. And uh, I had the whole film crew come here with Chris and 
we came here with the objective of solving the case and giving uh, the victim's mother closure. And like I said, I'll just, um, I don't get into things to fail. I'll just say that. I don't want to make any false promises, but just you guys will see. Awesome. And I love that you're working with Chris again, because I loved him. I thought he was awesome on there. The most intelligent people I've ever met in my life, hands down, not just saying that. We're friends now, but when we first got together, we weren't. And his, he's very cerebral, um, but he calls it how you sees it. And, and, and he's also kind of got like the cop mentality because he's worked with LAPD for so long. And uh, we're just very candid with each other. We don't always agree. You'll see in this new series, we don't always agree. It gets heated sometimes on and off camera, but that's what makes us work because we're so different. You know, mm. we both respect each other tremendously. And um, as odd as the couple is, the pairing yeah, yeah. is, everyone says it. We just have this, we just have a connection. Sometimes you just click with people and uh, me and Chris definitely connect. He's a, he's a great, great investigator and a great mind in general. Yeah. So can you tell us a little about what 2018 looks for Derek, look like, looks like for Derek? Gee, who knows? Um, <laughs> honestly, you know, right now it's the book, The Undercover Edge. You know, that's out. I just finished my national book tour. Um, then as far as sales and things like that and the reception, it's exceeded expectations by the publisher already. And we're only 30 days in. Mm. Uh, the response has been amazing. Um, I'm reading all the reviews online, Amazon, five-star reviews on Amazon. So the responses and the actual comments and emails I'm getting back about the book has been even more than I expected. Because when you write it, you're having this conversation with someone, hoping it helps them. But you don't really know until you get the responses because you can write a book and believe it's good and then find out from the audience that it sucks. Yeah. So I don't know, but I, I really put my heart and soul into it. Um, any time I didn't think something contributed, I would delete it from the book. And the editors didn't love that, but I left there. I left the editing process knowing this was everything I have and I really do believe it's going to help people. So I did the book tour, did some speaking. And what I found from the speaking was people really like to hear me talk about the book as, you know, in addition to reading it. So I've been booking speaking engagements. They kind of been coming to me. It wasn't expected, but I actually really enjoy speaking. So I have one coming up next month at uh, San Diego State University. I have one in Montreal. I have a few of the universities that I'm going to be going to. So it's been a lot of fun. So I'm going to continue doing that. Ho hopefully that grows. And then again, like I said, April 15th, the, uh, the new show starts. And uh, I'm really, really psyched about that. We're super excited about it. One thing in the book that I really, really liked as parents, as we're all three here parents, um, when you talked about leadership, because the thing that I really enjoyed from your book was that it was for everyone. It wasn't for just people that want to be police officers or join reality shows or, you know, whatever. It was for anyone. But when you talked about leadership in your family and how important that was, I just thought that was a really... It is. You have. If you're not the leader, then those little monkeys you have at home are running the show. So um, I, I really, I don't know. I think you did a really nice job kind of covering all bases in, in the book. The book was kind of uh, therapeutic for me, too, because it was a couple of chapters. There was a start to headquarters and then, you know, lead with confidence. And, you know, it's easy to say it. But when you when you're writing about it, you start to, like, reassess your own decisions. Right. Right. As I'm reading it, and I talk about it in the book. I'm like, as I'm writing this book. I'm thinking about the way I conduct myself and like taking on too much and not spending enough time with the family. And I actually realized some flaws in my own game as far as being a father. And I made some adjustments because I had to, you have to practice what you preach. So it was very therapeutic for me to, to write those things down and be more self-aware about how I was conducting myself as a parent and how important my role is in my daughter's lives and making sure that they have someone that they can look to for, for positive reinforcement as to how they should be conducting themselves. And uh, yeah, I I'm really proud of it. Like I said, it, it's a lot in there. Some of it seems commonsensical, but I think as parents, as as people in business or whatever you're doing, 
sometimes you can forget about the, the basics of, of who we need to be as people. Right. So when did this idea come to you to write a book? Was this uh, before you became a parent? Was it after Big Brother? Or has this been something you've really thought about for a, a long time? Or No, no <laughs> never, never thought about writing a book. I Actually, the first chapter, I, I call it the truth for a reason. Um, I, I'm not a natural writer <laughs> at all. Um, what it was, was after Big Brother, a lot of people came to me and said, you know, what was your big brother strategy? Because everyone has a strategy, right? What was your big brother strategy to win in the game? And when I really thought about it, I didn't have a big brother strategy. What I had was an approach derived from my personal and professional experience as an undercover detective, right? And the main components of undercover work are observation, adaptation, and communication. So what I did was take those main components and modify them to work in any environment. And that's when I said to myself, you know what, whether you're at school or at work or at home, you can use the same approach that I used in Big Brother and in life, in your own life. And I and I, I spiced it up with some really specific things that I learned during my advanced interview and interrogation schools. You know, that's the stuff that your listeners are definitely going to want to learn about. That's that's the advanced training that you don't get unless you're in that field. And I modified it with my business degree to work for everybody. Right. And that's when I said, you know what, I have something here that I think would help people and that could really progress whether you already have an approach or not. So I wrote the book proposal and I said, I'm not going to self-publish this. If I'm going to write it, I want a publisher to back me because I want their, their, I want their marketing. I want all that. Someone else to believe in this because I don't know what a good book is. And I actually sent it out to some of the top publishers. I got three offers and I went with source books because mainly the, the person who signed me didn't really know me from Big Brother. And I didn't want to write a book about Big Brother. So when she said that, coupled with their, their, how great their organization was and their marketing department, it was a perfect fit, and that's why I went with source books. And this kind of this kind of just came to fruition. That's why it was two years after winning. It wasn't right away. And, and one of the first things I say in the book is, I didn't write this book because I won Big Brother. I won Big Brother because of what's in this book. Hmm. Are you tearing up on me? I saw you. Waiting. <laughs> so beautiful, everything you're saying. <laughs> She's gonna be just insufferable after this. <laughs> it's true. It's really true. <laughs> Wait, I, I have a question about Big Brother. Can I ask a question real quick about Big Brother? Celebrity Big Brother. I'm obsessed. I'm watching live feeds. I don't know what happened. I accidentally paid for the live feeds. I forgot to change my email address. <laughs> There's problems in my marriage now. <laughs> no. Um. <laughs> so. Thanks you. So anyway, who do you think is going to win Big Brother? Because when this airs, it will be over. You can't change any. You can't change your mind. Can't this take it back. Solid. You got to say it now. We need yeah, to know. I was on the episode a couple weeks ago, yeah. if you remember, and I said I think Marissa's in the best position, and I and I. Um, Derek, she's the worst. Okay, so here's the difference, though. Okay, I see social media doesn't really like her. I mm. get that. But now separate your own personal opinion and, and the house. Are they really – now they are a little bit more. But when I said that, and I still believe it, in comparison to the others, who are they talking about the least as far as being someone they can't stand? Right. They have – Mercer has her little tiffs in there with Brandy and uh, you know all that stuff. But she kind of is in with everyone, yeah. right? And so when you're not being talked about and no one's really gunning for you, you're not their primary target, that's how you get to the end, just by default. You know, it's you just make it close to the end and then you got to win a couple comps. And I would say her or Ross, but I think Ross has kind of risen to the pack as far as someone who would win. Right. So I think they'll get him out soon if they can because they feel he'll win. Um, where Marissa, I think people look at her and say, I could beat her. Yeah. Uh, that might be hmm. – even though that's not by design – if that's how she gets to the end, then that's how she gets to the end. And uh, yeah, I still think Marissa has a very good shot. But you could have a, a, a dark horse like James 
James has the ability just to win all the way through. Yeah. I, I truly, mean, sincerely hope you're wrong with Marissa in the nicest way. <laughs> like, huh? She's the worst. <laughs> I am, okay, I, from my love of Sugar Ray, I have to go with Mark McGrath. He just sits there and eats, like, oatmeal like an old man. And <laughs> he could. He could. He's kind of got the similar Marissa thing going. Yeah. Where people look to him as kind of like the father figure, like the older papa guy, you know, and he's kind of giving James advice. And, yeah, yeah, he could win. He could win. He could definitely win. Again, I've seen stranger things happen for sure in Big Brother. We're locking you down with Marissa because now you've said three people and that's... Hey, no, I'm going Marissa. I'm going Marissa. I mean, I said on national TV in front of 7 million people, so I'm kind of already locked in. Yeah. Well, <laughs> we get at least 7 million downloads, so, you know. <laughs> I, I said on that show, so I kind of was lying. That was early on before you she... Did. So I still think Marissa, you know, is going to be in the end. I don't know if she'll win. Um, because here's the thing about this season, you know, not to go on the tangent about Big Brother, but the the house guests are voting and they're going to see how she conducted herself. That's different. Mm -hmm. And if you feel that they were slighted by her, she may not win. I didn't know when I picked my person that the how the competitors were going to be voting. If they announced it, I just missed it. That's completely possible. But um, knowing that Shannon and Chuck and you know Meta and all the, these people are going to get to watch her behavior and hear about it from their significant others that could hurt her you have to ask yourself who's playing the cleanest game because if they get to the end they could win i know a lot of people like mark to your point so if he's sitting in the final two with marissa they could vote for mark just because they like him more yeah he's a likable old man i love it well believe it or not i am not watching celebrity big brother um it's terrible of me but i don't know I'm just not really on board with that celebrity thing. I love watching thing. Hot Mess. I don't even like it when they bring back past Big Brother players. I always want to see a whole new crop of players. So, so you're a huge fan of uh, me coming back in and Paul and all those people, huh? I mean, I might go for that. but <laughs> <laughs> She might. I watched the first two seasons when Jason Guy was there and Mike Boogie, and those were the ones I watched. And then well, I just went to like 90 Day Fiance and just really terrible trash TV. So I'm a classy gal. I'm a classy gal. <laughs> Hey, trust me, I'm still, I love Big Brother. It's my favorite show on TV. That and Survivor, one and two. And yeah. that's just, I like the cerebral aspect of the game, the social aspect. It just, I just, I find it fascinating. I like not thinking and watching people's lives burn. Um, and, and in like, entertainment. When you compare it to these people. Yes, I'm, I have it all together. There's, <laughs> there's no mountain I can't climb. That's the book I should write. No mountain I can't climb. Why See, I watch Rose. Like, Brandy and you're like, I'm not doing too bad. I got it. I, I'm, I'm doing good. <laughs> Honestly. <laughs> we are way off topic now. Uh, let's get back to your book for one quick second here. Um, so who do you think should read your book? Everyone? Is it for everyone? Who do you, who are you, you mainly targeting here? If you here? don't say everyone, that's, <laughs> your editor will not be happy. <laughs> I know. And you know what? Whenever you say that, it sounds, it sounds ubiquitous to be like, it's for everybody, right? Like I'm trying to get everyone to buy it, but I'll, I'll be a little bit more specific. Uh, I would say young adults because, again, and this is being completely candid, I think it's going to be tough for people who are older than me to say, why should I read this book from this young kid who thinks he's got it all together just because he's had a couple things go his way. So I think young adults, people who are um, in high school, in college, getting ready to graduate, maybe just entering the workforce at a young age like I did, you know, where they're, you know, just entry level employees or I was 23, 24 years old and I was already supervising people. It was a weird position to be in, but it does happen. So I think people like that, you know, late teens, early, 
early 30s are going to be the main focus. That's my opinion. That doesn't mean it's not going to contribute to people outside of that realm. I've seen it a lot. But I think, again, high school, college students, uh, entry-level employees, uh, new managers, or anybody who's in a position that just basically is looking for something a little unconventional because I'm not saying this is the best book ever written. Anybody who says that's full of shit. What I'm saying is that this approach has worked very successfully for me. And I'm one of the few people, I think, as an author who've come up with an approach like this and kind of have a proof of concept where I was in a social experiment for 100 days with people I didn't know who didn't know I was going to write a book because I didn't know I was going to write a book. And I proved that it worked, right? So how did I do what I did if what I'm speaking about in the book, is it, is it all luck? Mm-hmm. I think the two-hour thing that you would watch would say otherwise. Right. And I, I know from experience being an undercover cop that this same approach is what I use in those situations. So if I was betting my life on it because that's what was at risk then, then I really do believe in it. So I think anybody who's looking for something that may be a little different might like this book because as we know – Sometimes throwing a curveball at a situation is what it needs. And because it's unconventional, I think it could work for a lot of people, regardless of what they're trying to accomplish. Well, um, Derek, let everyone know where they can find you, where they can find your book um, on social media, Amazon, all that stuff. Give us all your links. Yeah, you you basically said the books, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, uh, any independent store, all the books are in the actual brick and mortar stores or online. Online seems to be preferable for most people. Uh, social media, Derek L for Twitter, uh, Derek Lavasser for Instagram, and my website is officialderek.com. Perfect. Well, and we will link all of those in our show notes for this episode. So if anybody missed those, uh, you guys can go check it out um, in the show notes and we'll put everything you need to know down there. Um, Derek, thank you so much for coming and talking to us. We have really enjoyed this. Maybe me more than her. No, I appreciate it. It's <laughs> wonderful. I loved it. No, you were wonderful. I really appreciate it. Huh. You know, you were on Celebrity Big Brother, so now now I'm a big fan of yours. I'm just yeah, by association. No, I mean, listen, like I said, I, I love the show. I love Big Brother, and I appreciate you guys having me on. It was This was fun. This was good. Thanks so much for listening to the Moms and Murder podcast. Make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode. You can also find us at momsandmurder.com, where you can connect with us via social media. Please make sure you subscribe and give us five stars because giving us four stars would be a crime. Thanks so much. first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on that's nice at caskers.com we make this experience easy caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code welcome 10 for ten dollars off your first purchase get ten dollars off your first purchase with code welcome 10 at caskers.com